You're listening to audio from Praxis Church Kelowna. Praxis is a new church plant that exists to follow Jesus and make him known. If you're interested in finding out more or joining us in person, go to praxischurch.ca. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Our reading this morning comes from 1 Timothy 1, 6 through 11. It says, Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immortal, immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Welcome. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, first time guest visitors, my name is Josh. I'm the pastor here at Praxis. Um, this is an individual many of you probably won't have had a chance to meet yet. His name is Dana. Um, last week I mentioned that um, we're bringing on a church planning apprentice. This is our new church planning apprentice. Dana, um, if you weren't here last week, I'll share some of the story. We ended up crossing paths um, really randomly about six months ago and finding out um, he, he's been pastoring a church in Saskatchewan for the last six years, but has moved back to plant a church in Summerland which is my hometown, and so that's how he kind of came on my radar, and um, we found out we actually went to high school together, but, and the miracle is we, not only did we not get into any fistfights, we didn't even know each other. I also went to school with his wife, who I did know, um, but really small world, and, and, and he's an answer to prayer. I've been praying for years for laborers for this valley, where we need many, many, many more. We're praying God's going to raise people up internally, call them from wherever they are, but um, we're possessed with this vision of planting churches throughout the Okanagan Valley so everyone can be within reach of the gospel. And, and uh, Dana's an answer to prayer. So I just wanted to make sure everyone got to put a face to the name that I mentioned last week. He's going to be around a lot more in this next season. Is, um, we're just going to spend a year kind of deep diving into getting to know each other with the end goal of, by God's grace, planting a church in the South Okanagan Valley. So that's really exciting news. Um, everyone, if you would welcome Dana when you see him around. His wife will also be here a little later, and so get to know him and his kids. Um, your gift, Dana. Thank you. Let me, uh, let me open us in a word of prayer, and then um, we will dive in. Father, just thank you um, for a chance to reflect in worship that you're the one who qualifies us, Jesus. We come with nothing. I have no qualification but you. I have no plea but your blood covering my sin, qualifying me before the Father. And thank you that you are the ancient of days who works all things together for your glory, for our good, for your purposes. And this morning as we open the word, we pray that this, this timeless word that you've preserved for us, that you spoke by the Holy Spirit, would, um, would challenge us, would cut us, would train us up. And I'm in desperate need of you for that task. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray for your empowerment. Amen. Now, go ahead and open your Bibles. We're in week two of a new series working through 1 Timothy. 
We left off last week talking about the topic of doctrine, and doctrine really meaning a set of beliefs, a way of understanding God, a foundation, a framework for how we believe. Um, doctrine is important because God is chosen to reveal himself, and so we want to make sure that we're understanding him correctly. We don't, we don't want to kind of build our own interpretation. We want to understand him correctly, and today, there is many ideas around um, who God is. Many people think God is whoever you want him to be. Many people are taking guesses at God, uh, writing some even books on this God that they're taking guesses around and teaching other people about this God that they've constructed. It, it's, it's, it's really interesting. It actually reminds me uh, many moons ago now. I can't even think of how many years ago. My wife and I were in Laos, um, and... I lost our passports, and so while we were trying to locate them, we were holed up in this wacky little town called Luang Prabang, um, which is really fun to say, so I'm going to say it again, Luang Prabang. We were there for a whole week while our passports were located, and beside where we were staying was this guy who was carving, um, at the beginning of the week, started carving this statue, and over the course of the week, he's painting it, and by the end of it, he's bowing down and worshiping it really interesting to watch, and it's not really much different than our culture. We're doing this. We're forming God all the time in the image of what we want and then bowing down before this God that we've constructed. And so it's important that we be people of the Word, and, and this is why doctrine is important, because God has revealed himself. We read in um, John 14, 9, Jesus say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you want to take a guess at who Jesus or the Father is, you need to look at Jesus. Colossians 1, we read this. It says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers, authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. If we want to take have any understanding of who God is, we need to understand Jesus. We serve a God who has revealed himself. He's told us about who he is, his character, his works, how he saves our condition, how we were created, where we're going, what we're here for. He's spoken about all of these things, and this is why doctrine is important. It's important that we understand these things correctly and not just be pulling them out of our rear pocket. Uh, as we continue on in verse 6 today, what we're going to see is that there is a, uh, there's certain persons in the church at this time that Paul is writing this letter who are, who are teaching some things that are not true. They're, they're coming at some of the foundation, um, these doctrines, these core truths of who God is. They're threatening to undermine the foundation of belief. And um, what we're going to do is we're going to take a look really at verse 6 as we begin um, and, talk, and see how Paul is describing this taking place. So he says, certain persons, by swerving from these, like this core central truth, have wandered away into vain discussion. Certain persons, by swerving from these, they've swerved. And, and this tendency not only exists here in this time, it exists in our culture too. There's a lot of swerving going on in the church today as well. I think there's a couple of reasons we, we tend towards this. One, just pure ignorance. 
Some people, they're, they're swerving, they're taking a right because they just don't know. They don't even know that they don't know. They don't know what they don't know. They're ignorant. Some people haven't been actually reading the Bible to see what it actually teaches. And so they're swerving. Proverbs warns of this. It says, my son, this is wisdom speaking, my son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape your sight. Keep them within your heart for their life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Let them not escape from your sight. This is the instruction. Don't lose sight of the truth because we'll swerve. It could be ignorance. It, it could be forgetfulness, but we need to stay in the word. This is how we avoid swerving. Another reason I think a lot of swerving is taking place today could probably be called best chronological snobbery, where we get 2,000 years into the future and we think we can look backwards in time and, and make better guesstimates around how the way things were. Sure, they believed that then, but we're enlightened now. Um, they had Jesus wrong. He wasn't teaching that. I mean, there's a lot of this attitude. We live in the day and age of insta-experts, you know, where you can, you can amass a following online and people think you're an expert on something because you have an online class teaching others your ignorant opinion. It can be hard. There's a lot of swerving, and it can be hard to know who is swerving. Who's a wandering star, as Jude says? Who's a waterless cloud, as Second Peter says? It can be hard to know who actually knows what whether they're talking about it or not. I, I, I remember a story. Um, used to drill oil, again, many moons ago. I did a form of um, drilling where we would explore the earth and we would bring up samples and I would work shoulder to shoulder with a geologist all day. And I remember about two years in, working with this one geologist, he looks over at me, he says, Josh, I have to tell you something. I'm not a geologist. And I was like, what? And I actually was really impressed by this guy. He's like, I just read a couple books and faked my way into this job. And I used to really like this guy. I'm like, this is amazing. But if you think about it, there's actually something really dangerous about this too. Um, <laughs> he didn't know what he was doing. Oil companies were spending millions based off of his report. Could have been doing massive damage to the earth because they assumed he knew what he was doing. Some people think they're experts, and they're far from it. Some people don't know what they're talking about, and that's the case in the text today. Certain persons, by swerving from this, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. He's called them dangerous. The reason why is because they're teaching others about weighty spiritual matters that they know nothing about. There's this idea we hear a lot, you know, if you want to learn something, teach it to people. That's great for lots of things. <laughs> Some things that's not good for, like tightrope walking across canyons. If you were here last week, building steam-powered rockets to launch yourself into the atmosphere, to survey the earth and prove it's flat. These are dangerous things to just take guesstimates at. This is why 1 Timothy, a little later on, Paul says, watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. 
And, and if right teaching can save yourself and your hearers, wrong teaching, only kind of natural to conclude, could damn your hearers and yourself. Verse 7 here, um, Paul's talking about certain teachers who are teaching the law in certain ways. Um, this is going to come up a lot in Paul's writing. People who are teaching the law in wrong ways, um, misteaching the law. Uh, and in the context of this letter, this is referring to teachers who are wrongly using the law to determine who will and who will not inherit eternal life. <laughs> Again, if you trace this through, um, through the rest of Paul's writings, what we find is there's this group who's adding kind of Jesus to Judaism and saying eternal life is based off of the fact of you obeying the law or not obeying the law. And the group here that he's referring to um, in some of his other letters, notably Titus, he calls them the circumcision party, which is a horrible name for a party. Political party, social gathering, don't use this name. And, and Paul's after this because the reason is, is this group is making it really hard for middle-aged Jewish men, or non-Jewish men, I should say, to want to be part of what Jesus did. They don't want to be part of this. And the, the reason why is because... What, this group is telling people that they need to practice circumcision in order to be part of God's people. And uh, this is, is a distortion of the truth. That's what it is. And in order to explain how I've got to get really like super, super nerdy with you for a little bit here to kind of set up the context for why this is so dangerous. Um, within Judaism... <laughs> Circumcision was a central marker of what it meant to be part of the people of God. Circumcision was one of the terms of the covenant that God made with Abraham. Now, if, 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 so to be circumcised, it was the outward demonstration of the fact that you were a covenant keeper. And if you're here and you, you're not really familiar with this term covenant, I want to explain it. A covenant, an agreement between two people um, they make some promises, they, they kind of enter into an oath to perform or not do certain things. Uh, every covenant has three items to it. Terms, rewards, and conditions, or consequences, I should say. Terms, rewards, consequences. Um, the type of covenant we're probably most familiar with is what is referred to as a conditional covenant. So we've got two types up here. Conditional covenant is, you know, two people enter it into an agreement and they say, okay, so, the, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Here's the terms of what we are going to do. If you fail to do this, this is what will happen. Terms, rewards, consequences. Very common. We see these in business dealings. But this isn't the type of covenant that we find in the Bible. And this is where we can get a little confusing. What we see in the Bible is what is referred to as a unilateral contract or covenant. Unilateral. It's very one-directional. And to get hyper-nerdy with you, if you like pocket protector, theological nerdy, um, this is what is referred to as a vassal suzerian contract. And if you remember grade 10 socials, a suzerian was like a landlord and a vassal was like a land keeper. And these types of covenants, what would happen is the suzerian, the landlord, would come and say, I'm going to do this for you. You have to do this. It wasn't a, there's no two-way benefit. It's like, this is what you're going to do. And the 
the vassal was responsible to fulfill the terms. This is the type of covenant that we see reflected in the biblical covenants. This is the model that these would most closely resemble. Uh, now, it's interesting because God needs nothing from us. doesn't require anything. His back doesn't need scratching. He lacks nothing. Yet, we see him enter into many covenants in the Bible. We've got a list of them up here. Um, the very first one that you come across is in the very first chapter of the Bible. It's referred to as the Edenic Covenant. Or if you're um, more Presbyterian in your background, this would be called the Covenant of Works. Covenant of Works. And the idea was, you know, there's rewards in terms and consequences. It was, you're going to get paradise. I don't need anything from you. You're going to get paradise. God didn't create us because he was, needed some friends. He wasn't lonely. You're going to get paradise. The, the terms, don't eat the tree of... And the consequences is, you will die. But again, there's many covenants throughout the Old Testament. The Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Davidic covenant... The list goes on. But there's two that pertain to this text that we need to understand. And here's where I'm going. Two that were really central to what it meant to be a, a Jew at this time. And that would have been the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant we see in Genesis 12. God comes and he just says to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. Hey, I, he doesn't need anything from Abraham. I'm going to do this. That's what he says. And to show that you are part of this covenant, circumcise your children. The Jews were really good at this. They were really good about circumcising their children. The next covenant, though, is the Mosaic Covenant. And you'll remember, this is like Exodus 19 to 22, if you want to go and look it up later. God comes, strikes a covenant with Moses and says, I'm going to bless you. That's it. I don't need anything from you. I'm going to bless you. Keep my law. So he gives them the Ten Commandments. And, and like I said, so the nation of Israel, really good about circumcising their boys, really bad about keeping the law. This was the bad news. They kept breaking the dang law. They kept falling outside of the terms of the covenant. And what makes the New Testament so good and Jesus so good is that he comes and strikes a different type of covenant. He comes down and initiates a new covenant. We read about it in Luke 22. Jesus says this. He took the bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it, gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they'd eaten, he said, this cup that's poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Again, I don't need anything from you. I'm going to do something for you. I'm going to take care of your sins. This was, it followed the form of covenant. And it upped the ante a lot, though, in that Jesus came, and in order to strike a new covenant, needed to take care of the old ones. So he fulfilled the law that the Mosaic covenant required. And he took the consequences that we deserved for breaking it, which was dying. So he took care of the previous covenant, and he showed his love by doing what we could have never done, fulfilling the terms of it for us. And in this, what we see is Jesus come and taking unilateral covenants to a whole new level. A whole new level. And it goes even deeper. Okay, so the reason why the Jewish people kept breaking the former covenants is because their heart was actually inclined against it. 
They could not keep the law. We're going to get into this in a minute. Their heart rebelled against the law. They constantly defied the terms of the covenant, but in the new covenant, God puts a heart into the individuals he's entering into covenant with, and he promises this. It's in Ezekiel 36. He says this, speaking of this future covenant that he would strike with Jesus, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will take your heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you. And then make note of this. Cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. He says he's going to do that. The radical nature of the new covenant that Jesus makes is he actually performs heart surgery on those who are his. He puts a heart within them that desires to keep his law, and thus the identifying marker of what it means to be part of the people of God isn't circumcision. It's that we have a new heart. So Romans 2 speaks of this. It says, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, meaning circumcised. Nor is circumcision something that takes place outward. A Jew, a per, the people of God, is, uh, an individual who's part of the people of God, is one inwardly. Circumcision now is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter, not by the law, not something that we obey. It's something the spirit does to us. So the identifying factor, someone is a part of God's covenant people, isn't that they've been outwardly circumcised, it's that they've been inwardly circumcised. I want to say that again. This is important. The marker that you are a part of the, the covenant people of God is not that anything's happened to you outside. It's that internally, this is what Romans 2 says, your heart's been changed. So Jesus came, inaugurates a whole new type of covenant, and in doing this, um, this is why Paul is warning against those who come with new terms to the covenant. Jesus began a new one, and when people come and start saying, oh, that's great, but you need to do this, they're striking at the covenant. They're teaching people that they need to do something in order to be made right with God, to be part of that covenant, and that's hot baloney. Desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they're making confident assertions. They think they understand but they don't. They're teaching others, but they don't know what they're teaching about. And when somebody is teaching something that they don't know about, it's dangerous. We don't want someone like this teaching us, teaching our surgeons. You don't want somebody like this teaching you about salvation. Philippians 2, it says this, watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, the mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. Watch out for the people who are adding terms onto the covenant. Look at the next thing Paul says in his sort of macabre sense of humor. I wish those who were doing this would emasculate themselves. They believe in circumcision so much they should cut the whole thing off. That's what he's saying. Misteaching about how Christians are to interact with the Old Testament laws and covenants was rampant at the church at this time, but it exists in the church today as well. 
This error continues. It's still going on. How we interact with the law of God is going to determine which side of the horse we fall off into. The common at this time was you'd fall off one side of the horse into legalism. Today, I think it's that we fall off the other side of the horse into lawlessness. And Christians need to stay on the horse. Both parties, law keepers, law ignorers, need to properly understand and see how we're to interact with the Old Testament law. Law keepers, they teach people they must obey some portion of the law in order to be saved. Um, they put the messy in messianic. I grew up in a, in a church that went just full-on messy. If you're not familiar um, with the messianic movement, it became basically the church I was a part of became Jewish. They started prescribing the law, telling you how far you could travel on the Sabbath, what food you could and could not eat. They started adding the law. But again, I think law ignoring is probably our bigger issue today. Um, those who teach people, they can do away with the law altogether. Kind of this easy believism that is so pervasive in the church. Just simply do, sorry, simply believe and then do whatever you want. A few years ago, um, Andy Stanley, he wrote a book, um, and the whole premise of the book was that we should unhitch from the laws of the Old Testament. I think the book was called Unhitched. I read it. Anyone else read that book? Interesting, interesting book, but yeah, he said basically we should unhitch Christianity from the Old Testament. I would disagree with that as well. The, ten, the idea that the Ten Commandments are done away with is very prevalent in the church, though. Many go even further, and they try to do away with the commands of Christ and say, well, this was for a time, but we're not there anymore. We need to understand how to correctly use the law, or we're going to fall off one side of the horse or into the other, onto the other. Paul, Paul says this. The law isn't bad. He says, we know the law is good if we use it lawfully. And, and that raises the question, then, what, if we want to determine what is the lawful use of the law, we need to understand what was it intended for? What was it created for? How are we supposed to use the law? What's the proper use? These are important questions we should be asking. So um, I think these answers are also going to help us determine what Paul is going to get at in the remainder of this text here. When we examine the scriptures, just to answer these questions, what we find is that there's three uses of the law. And the church historically has taught these three uses. The first use of the law, kind of proper use of the law, is this. It's to restrain evil. The law, it lays down a, a groundwork for morality. It teaches how people and society and, and everything should function. This is good. It secures civil order. It, it protects the righteous from the unjust. And, and actually in Canada here, still to this day, most of our laws are built upon the Mosaic law. They're good. They're good. Romans 13, it says this. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. There's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed. Those who resist will incur judgment, for rulers aren't a terror to good conduct but to bad. 
Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what's good, and you'll receive his approval. What he's saying here, law is good, and it governs society, and that's a good thing. The law is not done away with. I hope it's not done away with. I don't want to live in a world where the law of God is not ruling. I don't want to live in a country where there's not a standard of truth based upon the law of God because there's no morality apart from God. If God is the creator, he's the lawgiver. he's the one who provides orders to the society. So first use of the law is to restrain evil. But the second one, this is important, it's to expose sinfulness, to to reveal our sinfulness. As we come to understand God's law and and observe his objective declaration of what is right and wrong, we can't help but come to the conclusion that we're lawbreakers. At least I can't. Romans 3.20, it says this. It says, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Because when we look at it, what we'll see is, oh, dang, I've been not doing a very good job of obeying this. The Ten Commandments, if you go through these, some of you will know them. Uh, You shall make no idols. We're all idolaters. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Anyone else broken this? You should keep the Sabbath day holy. Honor your father and mother. Happy Father's Day, by the way. I don't know if I said that coming in. You shall not murder. I haven't murdered, but... You shall not commit adultery. Remember, we went through this in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, you look at someone lustfully, you're guilty of that. You shall not steal. I'm guilty of that. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house or spouse. Show of hands, anyone not coveted a house? I think this is our big idol here in Kelowna. The law exists to expose our sinfulness. It's to show us that we fall short. And if you take a look at uh, verse 9 and 10 here, what we see is Paul is actually showing, or kind of like contrasting the Ten Commandments. Let me try to explain what I'm, I'm fumbling to say here. You look in verse 9. He said, understand this. The law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever is contrary to sound doctrine. The lawless and rebellious, this is the first command. They have a different God over them. They're not submitting to God. The unholy and profane, this is those who take the name of the Lord God in vain. He says, those who strike their fathers and mothers. That's the blatant disregard of honoring your father and mother. He said they're committing adultery and going outside of God's design for how sex should be expressed. It's a breaking of the seventh commandment. They're liars and perjurers. That's the ninth command. He's walking through. He's contrasting here in verses 9 and 10, the Ten Commandments. He's showing us we've broken the law. And if we don't ever see our sinful state under the law, if we don't see how we disobey the law constantly, we will never call out for saving. If we don't see our sinful state, we will never cry to a sinless Savior for saving. The law is meant to expose our immorality. And then it's meant to point us to Christ. Acts 13 says this, Through him, everyone who believes 
Through Jesus, everyone who believes is justified from everything they could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Jesus justifies us for all the things that the law of Moses couldn't take care of. There's no place for legalism in Christianity because legalism is just prides in one's own ability to keep the law. There's no case for pride in Christianity, only praise, because the only hope we have of ever being justified before God is Jesus. And, and this is what he gets at in verse 11, this gospel of the glory of the blessed God. This is what he's talking about. So the law provides some restraints in society. Secondly, it convicts us and, and exposes our sin. But the third use of the law is this. It's to sanctify us. Verse 8 speaks to this. We know the law is good if we use it lawfully. The law is not meant to, to justify us before God. That's not a right use of the law. It's meant to sanctify us. It's to teach us how to honor the Lord. The law can't get us to heaven, but it can teach us how to honor and obey the one who does. We read in John 14, 20 this. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Matthew 28, 20, he told us to go teach other people to obey his commandments. This is the idea. The law points us to Jesus. But then Jesus points us back to the law. The law points us to our need for our Savior. Then our Savior points us back to the law, not to, not to earn a right standing, but to express our gratitude for salvation to make us holy in heart, in conduct, to work sin out in us. We are declared righteous because of Jesus, but then we are cleansed, we are sanctified, we're made holy through the, uh, and, and really conformed to this, the way that God sees us through the law. He points us back to the law. Tim Keller said this, I thought it was helpful, said the law shows us who we really are, And so the law points us to see Christ as he really is, our Savior, the one who obeyed the law on our behalf and then died in our place so that we might receive the promised blessing. The law allows us to love Jesus and enables us to show our love and grateful obedience to him. It doesn't justify us. We're declared righteous by what Jesus did. But the new heart that Jesus gives us actually enables us and empowers us to now obey God. That's the radical scandal of the gospel. We don't have the law written on stone tablets that Moses gave us. We have the law written on the new heart that Jesus has given us. We don't have an external law. We have an an internal one. He took the laws that were written down externally and he's put them on the hearts of those who are his and and so that if we are Christ's our heart will increasingly be doing battle and still seeing sin in ourselves but increasingly be growing in a desire to conform to what he declares as holy and this brings up another question i think is an interesting one it's just which laws then should we as christians obey and and this is one that comes up a lot societally. A lot of people will, will look at Christians and say, you know, well, why do you obey this law but not that law? 
Why do you preach what the Bible says about Exodus 20 and, and adultery, but ignore what Leviticus 19 says about trimming your sideburns? Why do you, you know, teach laws about sexual ethic, but eat shellfish? Which laws should we obey? What we need to see, um, I'm going to get nerdy again with you quickly, and this is going to be a lot shorter nerd break here. The first, there's a couple different uses of the law. Um, or, sorry, different types of law in the Bible. First is civil law. We see civil law, Jesus gave this to Jews so that they could you know, thrive and run civically. This included everything from how someone should be tried in court down to dietary restrictions. There's a second category of law, ceremonial law, given to um, define how the Jews were to worship. What kind of animals could be sacrificed? What clothes could be worn? All of this... Um, what we need to know about these two things, Christians are not Jews. We're not. Secondly, the New Testament says Jesus fulfilled these. I want to show this to you. This is in Hebrews. Um, Hebrews 10, 10.1. It says, Since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year Make perfect those who draw near. What it's saying here, the law is a shadow of what was coming, but now it's done away with. When the light dawns, the shadow disappears. I got a really corny graphic. I'm a pastor, not an artist, okay? So the Old Testament law and sacrifices pointed forward to Christ. They didn't know what they were. They were just shadows. But now in the New Testament, the light has exposed what it was. It was Jesus He's the one who fulfills it for us. So now we don't go back. There's no shadow left to go stand in. Those ceremonial laws, those civic laws, they're done away with. But there is still a third category of law. That is the moral law. These are the laws that are based off of God's unchanging character, who he is, what he's like, and therefore what his people are to be like. God is unchanging, and so these aren't changing for us. They remain. And so we are called to engage with the law. Not as a way of earning salvation, but as a way of expressing it. The Ten Commandments aren't abolished. They're meant to reveal sin in us, cause us to call out to Jesus for forgiveness. If we're Christ, they're meant to conform us to his image. This is what it's meant to do. The law is good. And I want to ask, in light of this, how have we been engaging with it? Paul here is correcting a group of people who are trying to, to force people to be made right with God through the law. We might be falling into a different type of error. How have we been engaging with the law? When you read it, does it convict you of sin? Do you read it? I would encourage you, try reading the Ten Commandments this week. Again, we've just finished the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus ups the ante radically, and it's important, I think, that we need to continue to be in it. We need to read the law and remember that we have no hope before the Father except for Christ. If you're here and you're listening, um, this is the tough truth of the, God, of the Bible. The law of God condemns you. 
the law of God condemns here. If you are here and breathing, you're condemned by the law of God. You've broken it. You've defied its terms. And you deserve its consequences. Romans 10 says there's none who are righteous, no, not one. We are damned before God because of his law. But the scandalous good news of the gospel is that there is one who's fulfilled the terms for us. We have a new right standing. Romans 10 says that whoever believes that Jesus is God and declares with his mouth that God raised him from the dead will be saved. If we call out for saving, there's forgiveness in Christ. So we need to not fall into lawlessness. We need to not fall into legality. We need to look to Jesus. And, and I want to close our time in this section of text with two questions for us. Are we viewing our right standing before God as more secure because of anything that we're doing? Is there something that we do where we look at others and go, I'm better than him because I don't do that? Or they really don't get it because they're doing this. Could I suggest you might be holding on to the law as a form of righteousness? The other side of the horse, the other question is, are you ignoring part of the law that's meant to sanctify you? Is there a command that you know is there, but you're not obeying? Could I suggest you might have fallen off the other side of the horse into lawlessness? We need to view the law rightly. The law points us to Jesus.